Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. And of course, thank you very much to our hosts at uh, Bonk de Groef Peterkam. Uh, thank you for those of you that had, I know the traffic. Who, who, anyone get stuck in the traffic on the way here? Yeah, I know. Yeah. We're doing mobility next week. Actually, last week, mobility. Um, my name's Jim Kent. I'm with Paper Jam and Delano. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. I'll be introducing our guest in just one moment. Um, we really want uh, this evening to be as interesting and as engaging as it possibly can be. So there will be lots of time for you to ask your own questions as well as we move towards um, the end. I've got another slide coming here on screen, I think, on my left-hand side, just to say that if you want to engage with us, of course, uh, we invite you to uh, send a post on one of our social media networks. I'm more of a LinkedIn guy. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know about you. I prefer that one. Um, now, actually, I have a question for you before we start. Um, ladies and gentlemen, how many people were just evacuated from Afghanistan? 100,000? Any increase? It was 124,000 people. You know, that was the largest uh, evacuation. I hope you can hear me okay. I've just messed up my microphone. If there's any practical thing that uh, is really annoying you, just wave, it, wave at me. We don't need to be too formal about this. That's absolutely fine. Um, it was the largest evacuation in modern times. Um, and a reminder that indeed we live in an unprecedented era for humanitarian causes. Um, of course, the evacuation is only a small part of the issue when we talk about Afghanistan because the question is, who is going to do the work now? Who is left? And, and what should the priorities be and how are they going to deliver that? Uh, let's, come, let's come a little bit closer to home just for a second. Um, who here, if I was to ask you, and you can be honest, I don't mind your political colour, that's okay. Who here is concerned about European immigration? Uh, I mean, you know, let's just imagine that we're the full spectrum of political colours. You know, we probably have got a complete range of views in the room. Um, I don't know whether you know this, but 2019 we saw about 2.7 million immigrants enter the EU. This year has seen a 100% increase in the number of immigrants who died at sea entering the EU also. We're now around 2,000 people died already this year trying to enter by boat. As you may know, there are three main routes into Europe. Um, you have the Western European passage through Spain, the Central Mediterranean passage through Italy, and then the Eastern passage through Greece. Now, some people would say the European Union has already taken action about this and provided millions, perhaps billions, of aid to Turkey. They call it the Turkey solution. Um, as a consequence, we now have got more or less four million immigrants in camps in Turkey. The question is, is that a solution? And that will be one of the questions that I will be asking my guest in a moment. My guest tonight is originally from Greece. 
graduating from Thessaloniki, he told me not to make his intro too grand, but I've got to do some of this. Um, he holds uh, a PhD in surgery and a master's degree in international health. He moved to London, where he lives to this day. Um, he's a consultant in colorectal and emergency surgery uh, and awarded a fellowship from the European Board of the same. He's been involved with MSF since 2002, with a break in the middle, holding several roles, initially as a field doctor um, working with migrants. His attention then turns to the HIV and AIDS project in Zambia. Uh, he's worked in South Sudan, Iraq, and most recently Cameroon as an emergency and trauma surgeon. And he was elected MSF's international president in June 2019. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Dr. Christos Christou. <laughs> Welcome to Luxembourg. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. And thanks for this uh, lovely audience that uh, I have the pleasure to meet outside and I'm looking forward also to meeting the, the, uh, the rest that they may have come late because of the traffic jam. <laughs> so you're living in London now. How, how do you find London? Do you how like do it? I find London? It's a very interesting place and one of the things that made me in London to, to love London actually is that I never felt a stranger in London. I never felt like an alien. I've been in many places and you know, what does it mean to be working outside your own culture? There, I never felt it. Can I cut straight to an issue for you, if I may? Um, I'd like to start with Afghanistan. Um, from your perspective, as of today, what are the most pressing issues? Yes. Um, uh, let us not talk about numbers. They are impressive, but behind every single number, there is a human life that is under threat there. And uh, uh, you can imagine a very chaotic situation these days, but one of the most important things that is going on is that total collapse of the health system, uh, which is uh, actually dependent these days to uh, humanitarian aid that needs to come from abroad. So um, thanks. Uh, to uh, the proximity that we had as MSF all these years, we managed to maintain all our activities. We are still working in five main regions in, the, in, uh, in Afghanistan, and we retained also a coordination team in uh, Kabul. We know this is not enough. That's why we insist that uh, the whole uh, world needs to focus on humanitarian assistance these days in Afghanistan more than anything else. Let us not talk about development this moment. Let us address the needs of the people that they don't have access to health and to essential medicine. So when you talk about healthcare, are we talking about field hospitals or primary care? What sort of work are you doing? We are doing, of course, primary care. We provide uh, care to trauma patients. We have still this uh, center of trauma center in Kunduz. We deliver babies, we vaccinate people, we are uh, also trying to reach those that they are still not very confident, they don't feel uh, very safe to move. Although the conflict seems to be settling, but they are still hiding themselves. So instead of waiting for them to come and seek for health uh, services, we develop mobile clinics and activities to, to reach them. Now, with the departure of, for example, US military forces, I, I guess that's meant a complete change for you, hasn't it? 
it was something that nobody would really expect and could not uh, foresee what will happen. And still, there is a lot of uncertainty. But what is very uh, uh, certain for us is that uh, the needs are there, we are there, so uh, let us stay and, and, and play, as we would say. And uh, that's what we do, but uh, we, are, we need more. We need more people. We will now, and we are actually um, deploying more operations, we try to scale up. We still face challenges by uh, moving uh, and mobilizing both human resources and medical supplies. But at least uh, being present in Afghanistan with a very short interval since uh, 1984, uh, it, it means something. We, we know the country. <laughs> Is it safe for your workers to be there? Well, uh, today, some of our former employees, as well as a few of our current staff, have expressed their willingness to leave the country because they don't feel safe. And of course, we have to respect that, not only as responsible employers, but also as a sign of solidarity. And we try our best to assist them, knowing, of course, that MSF is a medical organization. We don't know human rights. We don't know. We are trying to network and uh, uh, lobbying different uh, countries in order, uh, in a case-by-case, case, uh, to assist these people. But uh, the least that we can do is to stand with solidarity next to them. The most of the staff, and you know how we are, sometimes really I wonder about my people, how crazy they are, they, they just want to be there. They just want to uh, keep delivering uh, humanitarian aid. Because Afghanistan is not a safe place for humanitarian workers. Uh, I saw a study by Brown University from the United States that said in the last 10 years, about 444 workers have lost their lives. I, and I understand that MSF has had uh, some losses in the field. Yes, indeed. I'll bring you back to 2004. We lost four of our colleagues in the Namshus by the Taliban. Um, 2015, there was our uh, trauma center in uh, Kunduz, uh, bombed by the United States Air Forces. And last year, uh, our uh, maternity ward, uh, a hospital uh, in uh, in uh, was uh, attacked. Nobody claimed the responsibility, but we think that it came from the most radical ISIS groups there, and uh, attacked. And uh, women, pregnant women, uh, newborn kids, and our midwife were killed. So this is the situation. Does this mean that they always target the medical care? It's not clear. You have, and we have to look at each one of these contexts as a separate context. But what it definitely means is that uh, our care is under attack. And uh, our care is uh, even more difficult. Our, our mission is more difficult these days to be delivered. It seems that nobody really respects the basic rules that even wars should have. Which side of the conflict were you on? <laughs> Which side? We do our best to be everywhere. We are driven by the needs of those, that they, of those that they are most excluded. And we may sometimes be perceived as taking sides. Apparently, the reason is that uh, we cannot uh, make it uh, happen being in both places, because some may want us, some may don't want us. But we keep negotiating. It's a constant and battle that we give in all over the world. And these days, it becomes even more difficult. Not only because they don't respect the international humanitarian law, this is our only uh, uh, passport that we have, 
But uh, because of this uh, very vague notion and uh, the framework and uh, the counter-terrorism, if you look at contexts like uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, the whole Sahel region, I've been in Nigeria last year and I knew that there is more than a million people completely excluded from any access to essential medicine and uh, health services because they were in the territory of uh, non-state armed groups, the most radical ones like Boko Haram. So we do our best to be there. And even if we gain some access because we negotiate with everyone, at the same time we are perceived as helping terrorists just because we want to reach these people. And Nigeria government does not appreciate that. So I was there to, to convince them that as a doctor, what I have to do is accommodate everyone in our premises without looking at religious or any kind of political beliefs. As if, exactly what I do in my emergency department in London. I'd like to bring the conversation closer, closer to home. Um, talk about Europe's borders for a second. Uh, sometimes it might feel as though we're being overwhelmed by immigration. What's, what's your view? I have to be very clear and again provide a very medical answer to this question because every, well, everyone has been concerned a lot about uh, uh, people's lives that they flee from places like the ones that we described before, from places that even our hospitals get bombed, and they come here because they seek for safety. And MSF, of course, is not the one to judge or decide who deserves and has, and, uh, has the right to stay or not. What we want is that everyone is treated with respect and with human dignity. And what we don't want is what we see, what we've been witnessing, since uh, 2015, when uh, this uh, big uh, uh, reception crisis in Europe and especially in the Greek islands happened. And what we witness is uh, a deteriorating inhumane living conditions in the camps. People are detained, they are punished for making this trip, and uh, they are pushed back. I mean, it's unethical. Pushbacks today in Europe. So we are advocating for that. We would like to see a world that treats people by having in the agenda higher, not security, but humanity. We have to do this shift, and our leaders need to understand that. Because at the end of the day, they don't achieve even what they want. They don't pass the message. You said that. The last year, we had more deaths. People still will make the trip because they are desperate, but they will choose more dangerous route to do that, and we will have more victims. But isn't there a limit? We as Europe can only take in so many immigrants. I mean, even here in wealthy Luxembourg, uh, in fact, we, we score rather poorly in terms of welcoming immigrants and we're a very rich nation. And that's because there's a political price to pay. Is there a limit? We can't just open the doors, can we? It's not again about opening the doors or closing the doors. It's about respecting people that they want to make the trip we can think together collectively as Europe what's the best way to treat that. And uh, to answer your question, I'm not really sure where is the limit. Maybe for some people it's there, for others it's there. We need to look at the demographics. We had this conversation also today with uh, people that they're really worried about uh, uh, also the, the, the workforce of Europe and the future of Europe. So there are many things that we have to take into consideration. And there are many solutions 
I mean, let us not forget that this right moment in Yemen, it is us, the Europeans, with our weapons that we make a situation so intolerable that people want to flee. Or maybe the choices that we make make uh, uh, change, uh, such changes in the climate that forces again people to move. So let us have this conversation, uh, but uh, let us make it a very uncomfortable conversation for all our leaders to have. Final question on this particular point, uh, going back to the Turkey solution. Um, we've got four million immigrants uh, potentially in Turkey right now. Uh, the camps there are part funded by the European Commission. Do you view that as an acceptable solution? It's not acceptable, of course. That's why we had to suspend any funding from uh, ECHO and the uh, European Union in uh, 2016. I, don't ask me if that was right or not, and don't ask me if finally we made our message come very well across, but uh, we felt so upset with an agreement and uh, perceiving uh, Turkey as a safe third country. And uh, now we are not even allowed to access these people and assess the situation. So I cannot even talk if it is a safe country or not. What I see, though, is uh, Turkey's government uh, instrumentalizing the whole crisis and uh, being the ones that they, 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 they hold everyone in, uh, in uh, their own game. They are gambling with this. And uh, now with Afghanistan, I know that they will accommodate even more people. So in the first reading, you felt like, okay, Turkey is open and Turkey is more uh, humane than anyone else. But at the same time, I know that they will be using that in a way that, again, it's not acceptable. This is the situation with, uh, with Turkey. And at the same time, uh, with the European Union, we have been uh, uh, even criminalized. We have been penalized of trying to assist the people choosing these routes to come to, to Europe. In Italy, one of the three ways you mentioned that our boats very often uh, have to be suspended, and not only MSF's ones, but other, uh, other NGOs, and uh, go through uh, weird investigations, administrative issues about waste trafficking, just because they don't want us to be outside. And uh, who's doing that if we're not there? Someone needs to do the job. No one else does the job. We have to do it. MSF is a big organization, active. Are you active in, in every continent? Mm-hmm. So Everywhere. So you've now there are 88 countries that we are deploying activities. And in most of them, we have managed to integrate also COVID-related activities, because we now we think that makes absolute sense. Yeah, I hear that you were providing COVID support here inside of Europe too. <laughs> yes. We have done this in places that could never imagine that we would uh, be needed. Not only because we, know, we have this know-how of other outbreaks, Ebola being one of them, and very recent one, but also because we are very much interested in sharing our know-how and our experience to authorities that they may have the most sophisticated and advanced systems in the world, but they have never been confronted with these kind of diseases and these kind of outbreaks. So we found ourselves in Brussels, 
we found ourselves in, uh, of course, Italy, Spain, uh, in in the uh, United States, next, of course, to the indigenous populations in Amazonas and uh, in all the camps that you can imagine that uh, COVID was like a time bomb. And, and uh, we're still uh, doing our best, assisting, uh, providing knowledge, but at the same time providing uh, COVID-related activities, services to the population. It seems incredible that you're providing those services in, in Europe. Shouldn't our healthcare systems be doing that? Of course, yes, but in all these systems, there are people that they are excluded, uh, completely invisible, and they are left behind. And we are there for these people. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to play just a, a very short video and we'll be right back with you. Now it's time for part two. There we go. Christos, I'd like to ask you a question about uh, women. Hmm. Is it true that women suffer more in crisis situations that you work in? Yes, it's true. And uh, both women and, and children. And that's what we, we see. That's what we see, in, especially in conflicts. That's what we see also in uh, the epidemics. And uh, there must be several reasons why this happens. But uh, I think uh, cultural issues also play an important role next to the vulnerability that uh, uh, women may have because of their roles and not because of their nature. So um, I, I, I like this question because I can bridge it with something that I'm very interested in also, of the role of the women in uh, both uh, our uh, uh, projects and interventions as well in their communities. Because uh, we think that uh, they are not empowered and this moment, and this is a very important thing. Uh, we uh, think that uh, what is very, very important these days, what is crucial actually, in any single intervention that you do anywhere, you make it a patient-centric one and you uh, engage with the communities. And in order to do that, you need to empower the role of the women there. 
And uh, even in our uh, own, uh, let's say, uh, facilities, I can see that uh, in, in, in many places uh, it is uh, the male that dominate uh, uh, with their presence. So uh, this uh, gender equality is something that uh, really uh, is uh, concerning us. At the same time, of course, uh, in, um, in all our coordinating positions, I'm glad to say that uh, women are even uh, far beyond uh, men, and uh, they are almost 55% are the ones with their female minds that uh, they uh, try to lead uh, this organization. Of course, in, in many cultures, women are providing the majority of the childcare. Um, in the work that you're doing, for example, in Africa, what, what sort of things, what sort of projects are you doing to empower women? Uh, mainly projects that they have to do with maternity and uh, maternal and child uh, health, but uh, also anything that you can imagine that relates to epidemics. Uh, the vaccinations campaign, in order to happen, women need to believe in that and be the ambassadors, and they have to make uh, uh, their own choices. And another very important field that maybe a few years ago we wouldn't feel that comfortable to talk about is uh, the termination of pregnancy. The safe abortions. I, I, I really don't know, and allow me to say, I don't care that much about what we believe about this. What I do care when I go to the field and I see women uh, torturing and even killing themselves because uh, they have an unwanted pregnancy and they want to terminate it, and they put sticks, they eat herbs, they bleed, they die we have to do something, we, at least we have to offer them the choice because at the end of the day, it's them to control their bodies. That clear with our medical minds and let us not enter into any discussion on this, which of course is not that easy. You understand even culturally that uh, even members of our staff cannot really digest that and uh, react as we would like to. But at the end of the day, let us uh, medical, uh, uh, let's say ethics, guide us, and this is the answer, and this is the way that uh, we approach it. How do you overcome societies where, due to social pressures, like women are not allowed out of the house? How do you provide care then? Tricky, and now this is the situation in, in Afghanistan again. I'm coming back to this, I want to link it with, uh, it's not going to be an easy going thing. Maybe we have managed to negotiate access because of this long presence, but uh, Taliban's today are not going to uh, make it happen in the way that we would like by respecting all our principles. We may have to choose women to treat women. We may have to recruit um, female obstetricians, and we do that as we do that in other places where other type of people may not be that much wanted. We had this conversation yesterday again about something that is not really ethically acceptable, but it happens only exceptionally, but still happens that we have to choose you and not you because your nationality, your background, even your color uh, minimizes, mitigates the risk of exposure. And uh, if I send someone like a, a, a white, a male, a Christian, a Western European in Mali, he may get abducted and put even the whole team in a risk. And these are things that we know we don't accept. They happen. We try our best not to do it, but this is how we may have to operate in the coming days also in Afghanistan, and especially when it comes to uh, treating uh, uh, females. Uh, you've had first-hand experience of working with uh, patients with HIV. Uh, is the HIV crisis over? 
Very good question. Yes, I was in uh, an HIV project in uh, early 2000. And uh, that moment, MSF made a bet with the medical society, with the world, that uh, these people can benefit from uh, uh, antiretroviral treatments, although they may not have in, even watches to uh, see what time they have to take the medication. But uh, we managed to engage with them and get a very good compliance. So that changed the game. But actually, it was not that that changed the game. It was them and their posters clubs. It was their communities, their grassroots organizations that they were organized, demonstrating for um, uh, better treatments, cheaper treatments, combination of drugs, pediatric doses that we didn't have. And they were the ones. That's how I got fascinated with MSF. That I saw that next to our medical action, there is also this societal interaction that you need, and that this can really change the games. So uh, I was hoping that we will be over with HIV. But uh, unfortunately, there was a kind of HIV fatigue in the coming years, and uh, the donors lost their interest. And uh, we are still faced uh, with uh, serious uh, uh, challenges. For instance, I remember when I was uh, there, we didn't have tablets for the kids. And we had very malnourished kids that were, were born with a disease. And uh, in order to um, understand how we could uh, uh, you know, treat them, we had to smash the tablet, take this. Next day would be a different dose. That's all we had. What we have today, uh, maybe one pediatric formula with a combination of four drugs that they help better, still uh, an awful taste. And uh, that's where uh, us, with uh, another initiative that we had, we call it Drugs for Neglected Diseases, uh, the DNTI, thanks to the money that we got from the Nobel Prizes, we started uh, looking at an even more tasteful, uh, let's say, combination of drugs for these kids. But nobody is interested because these kids are in Africa and this is not a market. They're not going to raise money from having pediatric formulas. They prefer to do the new Viagras. Yeah. I'd like to uh, move on to another subject uh, right now. Uh, I've got a question for our audience, actually. Um, how many people here believe that climate change is real? Could you raise your, raise your hand? Just about everyone. <laughs> I've got two Americans at the back who are not too sure. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> British people love to make jokes about Americans. It's a thing we do. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, from your perspective, uh, I know that you're looking at the impact that climate change is having on, for example, pe people movement. And therefore, it's going to change the way and change the style of work that MSF will have to do in, in the future. How concerned are you that climate change is going to profoundly change the world? It's not a hypothetical question, of course. It, it happens. It's been happening for many years. I was hoping that COVID could uh, teach us a lesson there and would uh, invite us to look at the bigger picture. Unfortunately, it's not that clear for everyone. But for MSF, it's clear that uh, anything that has to do with uh, what we call vector-borne diseases these days, for instance, or uh, diseases uh, like uh, infectious diseases, uh, is a lot related to uh, how much we have been violating our 
<laughs> our borders next to the rest of the, the nature and uh, especially the wildlife. How have we been treated uh, wildlife? We knew that with Ebola. We see that again now. I'm sure we will see, see it again soon. Uh, so I, I would expect that we'll uh, become more sensitive. And okay, let's forget for these people that they may still deny. The rest, uh, no, but uh, uh, being sensitive is not enough. We have to act, and we have to act uh, yesterday. Their MSF, uh, of course, again, late and a bit slowly, started understanding that our role is not just the one of uh, every uh, responsible citizen's role to mitigate our own uh, carbon footprint, which, by the way, is not an easy task because it's not about you know recycling papers in our offices here or uh, drinking our smoothies with a non-plastic uh, straw. It's about uh, replacing generators with uh, huge solar panels in the middle of nowhere in, in Congo. It's about uh, sterilizing in an alternative way my materials to operate the operation instead of importing everything well sterilized, say, for the patients, but in huge plastic bags or whatever. So this is a huge investment. I'm not sure that even in my organization we understand how big is this, but we are willing to work on this direction. And next to this, we have to help those that they will change the climate agenda. It's not us, the humanitarians, that we can do that, but it is us that we've been witnessing the consequences of climate change to the health of our patients. And we've been treating already patients in several places that they have been affected by the climate change, not only because of the droughts, because of the mines, there are several reasons. That's why I'm glad that these days, uh, and we are here in Luxembourg, MSF uh, uh, Luxembourg, they have uh, the, their uh, research operational unit that they try to understand this impact. And for instance, South Sudan, which uh, I was uh, a few months ago, uh, has been uh, hardly affected by uh, the floods that um, the people there said that we haven't seen ever in our lives this level of, of water that prevents us from, from cultivating anything. So uh, uh, MSF Luxembourg today tries to, to read this, to understand the impact and link it. So that's what we need to do. Collect all this data, analyze it, and uh, make the link between climate change and health consequences. And let others, apparently environmental NGOs and uh, civil society organizations, to uh, move it further. In fact, Luxembourg had fairly bad floods this year too. So. For people who are cynical, it came a little bit closer uh, this year. Thanks for this connection. We um, have to use it. Yes. Does climate change, is this going to change the way that you use your resources as an organization? It has already changed this because we've been confronted also with all these challenges of mobilizing our people because of the COVID. Uh, within the very first months, it was so difficult to move uh, people, for instance, from a wealthy country to a country that need them more. And uh, although we all, always had also people uh, locally hired, this time we had to give them more, uh, let's say, responsibilities. And we had to trust them more. And we had to invest more. And it worked. Of course it worked. <laughs> it, 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 it would work. Uh, we have brilliant people all over the world and we have to make the best use of them. But having said that, I would never like to see MSF having a regional approach. I would never like to see Brazilians, uh, doctors treating only Brazilian population. 
uh, I am very uh, much in favor of uh, having a Swedish logistician going uh, to the Amazonas in Brazil or to West Africa, not because he will come back and uh, talk to you and raise some funds or uh, engage with the society. It's because at the end of the day, MSF is about this international solidarity. We look at problems that global problems that they want global solutions. So this mixture of themes make the, the, the methods and the work that we do more powerful. So well, this is the spirit of San Frontierism. And this year is quite an important year for you, isn't it? It is, 50 years anniversary. Nothing to celebrate though, <laughs> but still a lot to reflect. A lot to reflect. And in fact, uh, I've got a video, just a short video, which we're going to play These are the 50 years anniversary. Someone just told me to ask you, were you born, therefore, when this organisation started? I was born in 1974. 74? The organisation was born in 1971. But I'm, I belong in this generation, let's say. And I was inspired from this organisation since the very beginning. I, was, um, I remember myself in a medical student in Thessaloniki when I first time saw a poster and it was a campaign, quite a successful one, which showed uh, one of the tablets, a, a drug, a medicine there. And also above this, there was um, a, a bullet. And uh, the message was, their weapons kill, ours save lives. And that's how I joined MSF, actually. And uh, yeah, looking at this message now, why this video, you may have noticed that it says 50 years of humanity. So as everyone and you people know that very well, how important it is to find the right language, the right words to, to inspire and also communicate. Uh, it took us a long time to understand what is this, what we are here for. And uh, of course, you could imagine people proposing different ideas. Oh, we don't. We are not this, we don't use this militaristic language, we don't do that, we don't do the other. At the end of the day, we made it very simple because what we are here for actually is exactly this, to defend humanity. When the whole world seems to be falling apart, when we are living in such hostile environments, where we are asked to operate in places that they have no respect, to IHL, to human dignity, we get penalized, we are not the, the angels or the heroes in the past, especially in Europe these days, when we point the finger to our states about this unacceptable role that they play in their policies. We are not perceived as we used to. But whatever, at the end of the day, what we are here for is exactly this, to be these little islands of hope and of humanity. I mean, you've been an emergency doctor, you've worked in surgeries, um, how have you managed to avoid becoming numb to humanity? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, there are mechanisms to cope with this. But again, I think we, we are stressed. We get a lot of stress. You may think that the, most of the stress we get is in those places that there are bombs flying above you or where your life is under threat. Personally, I was more affected, not from my trauma patients. I was more affected by the empty looks of the eyes of the little kids that they have been detained in Greek islands since more than years, that they have lost their interest to leave, they commit suicides. And this is hard. And especially when you are also a father, it's getting even more hard. But at the same time, I had amazing moments in this movement. I will never forget those moments that people look at you and say that even if you didn't manage to help me as much as we both would like to, you didn't abandon me. You was there standing next and you give me hope. And this hope helps them carry on. And this hope helps me carry on. So I, I guess the obvious question now is, what can we do? I think you already do a lot. And let me explain what I mean by that, although maybe my fundraising team may say, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> the way I look at this, what we do, we try to alleviate the suffering of the people that they need us more. And we have those that they are there to implement that. And it's us also that we may stand one step back in our offices and we do our best to enable this to happen. And we have all these people, thanks to their generosity, that they support us, both financially and morally. And we need that. And I was really amazed these days that I was talking to people, powerful people, so humble, so interested in understanding how they can do more, what are the challenges. I never felt like this. And uh, that reminded to me that we are a chain with all these parts. And each one of these parts is so important, so crucial. We don't have to break any of this. The supporters, the enablers, the implementers. That's how I look at this. That's why I insist that no matter Sorry, teams, but it's not about money that we're here for. It's about understanding, engaging, and you helping us, sharing your ideas, your ways of looking at it, and us also sharing with you our challenges. And maybe with this way, we try also to hold ourselves more into account of what we do. That's how we need to be assisted. Um. You know, I'm going to do something spontaneous, if that's Please. okay. Uh, maybe, could I have, have anyone, anyone here who is working for MSF, would they like to stand up, please? Because I think we'd quite like to see you and say thank I you. I want to see Peter standing up, one of our Can brilliant I... surgeons from the field. Can I have a, a round of applause, please, for the MSF team? Thank you, and may I invite the guest, if you'd like to go and have a chat with all the MSF people who are here tonight. Okay, let, let's get practical. 
uh, fundraising is important, isn't it? Of course it is. We need this. We need uh, the money to move. And um, as I said before, we need uh, the support, the engagement. And fundraising comes also with communicating messages, advocating, and I hope also helping us lobbying for policy changing. So are we talking about us uh, for local politics or, or European? We always, in these cases, we need to, to think global, but act local. And uh, that is the important thing. So it doesn't matter the size of the countries. I keep hearing that these days in, in Luxembourg. And not only because there are so many powerful people here, but it's one of the, historically speaking, also crucial, uh, let's say, uh, actors in, in United, uh, in the uh, European Union. And I had the pleasure to meet also uh, ministers and uh, tomorrow again. And I, I want to make my message come very well across about how extremely concerned and worried we are about the situation. Not only, of course, what is happening in Afghanistan these days, what is happening in Libya or in Mediterranean, the bigger picture. I mean, if you look everywhere we are, you will see also European Union with one hand donating, with the other hand exploiting. I think that's quite a hard message. Uh, I mean, quite a few of us would say we're kind of proud Europeans. We are and we should be for our values, for our principles. And uh, these need to come now in front. And let us not talk only about a humanitarian crisis. We can talk about pandemic again and see what else we could have done leading with an example that prioritizes solidarity than profit making. Uh, you talk about solidarity, of course, uh, there are pressures within Europe for absolutely the opposite. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a British guy, I saw some changes in the last few years, and, uh, uh, and you live in London, so you see more of Boris Johnson on TV than I do. Um, and also on, in Eastern Europe, uh, sometimes we see, for example, uh, the political right, uh, being rather active. What, what's your message for us as, as activists in a European political framework? We need to move back, not just to the middle, but uh, also to uh, what was the vision behind European Union. And um, we need to remind to ourselves all these values. And let us not just talk, but walk this uh, talk. I mean, it's easy. Today, we have content to do that. We have, um, for instance, uh, vaccines and other COVID-related products. And uh, European Union, actually, actually, science has delivered a lot. They did an amazing job the last year. But what we did with that? We trusted only uh, the uh, few pharmaceutical companies, the big farmers and the free market, to set up the rules and uh, control the pandemic. It's not possible. We, d we need this day, first of all, to, to waive all these intellectual properties, the, the patents, to share this, but this is not enough. This has to come also with uh, sharing the know-how, the knowledge, and help all these other places in the world to start scaling up manufacturing capacity. Uh, we need uh, 20 billion doses of vaccines now. We can never get them from a system that uh, uh, controls the rules 
and uh, produces, apparently in their limits, they may not be able to produce more, but uh, only for, uh, for those that they can uh, consume and get the benefit from. And it's quite unacceptable that uh, while we are talking, some uh, countries have already started the third boost dose. My dad is going to take it soon, I think. Okay, but <laughs> I would prefer before this, and I really mean that, that uh, we have covered uh, those most vulnerable in other places in the world. And there, the coverage is less than 2%. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to open up to the floor now if any of you have got a, a question for... Christos, if you'd like to raise your hand. You can ask about... There we are, sir. In the 50 years, have there been any projects that you can say has been accomplished, can hand over to local uh, healthcare or local authorities? Because if you look, uh, in the 50 years, there has only been more crises. And I would not say... Mm. Yes. Yes, yeah. I, I don't think that people move because they just seek for better uh, conditions. They would never, uh, at least most of them, they would never like to leave their places, as everyone. Uh, the reason why they do it is exactly what you described, and there we all need uh, to understand that uh, there is a lot of space to do more things, to prevent, of course, this uh, phenomenon of uh, people fleeing desperate to seek for safety. From the other side, of course, is a human right to uh, be free to choose wherever you want to go. But I insist, from all these populations that we assist, we know that they would prefer to stay there. So let us have this in mind. Back to your question about, um, indeed, if we have managed to accomplish something. Uh, I, I think looking back in these 50 years, there are many things that uh, we, I think we've done a good job and um, we may have changed a little bit the, 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 the game, like uh, HIV being one of them, like some progress in research and development in different areas. There are some neglected diseases that now we seem to delivering some medication and uh, minimizing the people that they suffer from them. Again, by creating another, uh, let's say, uh, model of research and development that does not uh, meet uh, any of the needs that the big pharma have, to make profit, but we do it, like for instance, for leishmaniasis, trypanosomiasis, sleeping sickness, very, you know, tropical diseases that um, we may have just looked here in our uh, medical atlases. But they are, they exist. 
So there was a lot of work that has been done there, and maybe uh, it is never enough uh, to uh, ways to we don't have all the ways to communicate that. From the other side, we have found ourselves in many places uh, since uh, <laughs> ever. Afghanistan being just an example, but uh, in a Democratic Republic of Congo, in a Central African Republic, uh, we are there with the budgets that they are bigger than uh, the ones of the ministers of health. And still, nothing changes. Um, I was in South Sudan only the last 10 years, we spent 750 million in South Sudan. We lost more than 17 of our colleagues in conflicts, and everything seems to be the same as I left it in 2013. And still very dependent on this. So what we can do more is the question, in order maybe one day to say that, okay, we may not be needed that much. Something that maybe so far we didn't do that March, because we are an emergency humanitarian organization. And this is to, to develop, to um, uh, train, to, um, and in South Sudan these days we have, sorry, the, what we call uh, MSF Academy, where we, we train people. And we train people not for us to use them later on, but to leave them there and carry on. And we try also not to maintain big uh, uh, hospitals, and uh, more advanced uh, services, but uh, spread our services in all single villages, move with uh, healthcare workers, with uh, other models of providing uh, basic and essential uh, health services, and not only addressing uh, needs uh, uh, in uh, you know, big uh, centers as we uh, may do the last years in many places. Thank you. Madam. Yes. Could be a, a more intensive, more, let's say, radical lobbying. Mm, thank you. Did you hear the question at the back? Yes. Okay. It's Good. about MSF lobbying, lobbying, which is one of the three, let's say, raison d'etre of uh, each one of our sections to uh, raise funds, to uh, uh, recruit resources, human resources, and to lobby. Uh, and uh, I don't think we are good on that. What we are good on is engaging more with our uh, societies, as we do, 
and sensitizing more those that they can maybe uh, affect uh, the policies and change them. But this very professional lobbying that you are referring to is something that uh, only the very last years we have uh, started doing that more systemically, investing more on that. Is this enough? I don't think so, because you, you indeed mentioned Brussels as one of the centers, but uh, the world has changed a lot. Uh, people asked me, where is my office? I said, in Geneva, because traditionally this is the place where all humanitarian organizations and national, international NGOs, UN, WHO is there. So we, we, we felt that this is the place where you do lobby. But uh, do I really think today negotiating in Nigeria, for instance, uh, uh, access to those that they are more um, neglected, that uh, Brussels uh, or uh, the European Union leaders uh, will help me more? Or are there new actors, new countries with uh, their soft power that they may affect more? And uh, you can imagine how, how many new powers are raising this day while our friends may <laughs> don't feel that comfortable saying that the United States is losing this, this role. So uh, we, we have to look at this in a more comprehensive way and uh, look also in other sides of, of the world and lobby also there. Difficult to engage with their societies, though. In, uh, in Russia, for instance, we have a tiny office. We, we, we try, we recruit few people, but it's still baby steps. In China, the same. And while we have uh, 62,000 people, even more these days, while we have uh, sections uh, spread all over the world, north, south, east, west, we're still perceived as a European organization, and we're not. And this is our next challenge now. And uh, we, uh, I think this takes some time, but uh, as you can see from the images, the people that they deliver the services, the people that they implement that, are not, at least not only, the people and the faces that you may uh, were familiar with all these years. They come from all over the world and they go all over the world. How well do you work together with other humanitarian organizations? Another very interesting question. Uh, we touched upon this uh, briefly before because um, we were talking about how important it is to, to work with partnerships, with other partners, especially on the ground. It's difficult uh, in uh, this level because sometimes we don't even share the same, let's say, principles or values. I'll be very general in my answer, but I will bring also a very tangible example. Uh, but uh, uh, what happens when, uh, for instance, I am there providing one kind of service to a patient, and this patient then needs a next uh, service? Let us bring the example of me being the surgeon in a trauma place, and I have, unfortunately, to amputate a limb of a little kid. MSF cannot provide anything after that. We saved his life. What needs to happen next? There's someone else coming and says, I can give him the limb, the artificial limb there. So we collaborate, and that's how it works. Is this enough? Well, um, on the ground, I think it is. Uh, the patient gets the benefit, but uh, we 
could uh, multiply also our effect, especially when it comes to lobbying, by having more partnership and uh, better collaboration also in other levels. Maybe now is a good opportunity with the climate change, because uh, this time, knowing that we are not the, the champions in, uh, in uh, this agenda, we are still humanitarians, we have to do it in partnership, and we have to do it by involving also the civil society. Uh, I heard somebody mention just before this session started, um, when it comes to healthcare, sanitation is of course extremely important. Uh, the gentleman referred to long-term solutions. Uh, can you imagine yourselves being in a partnership with uh, a water-based NGO? Oh yes, uh, that's exactly what I experienced in, uh, in, uh, in uh, the field this last time in South Sudan. I was in a, in a place, in a big camp, more than 120,000 people there. When I was last time in 2013, we were still very optimistic about a new nation that was born in 2011, and things are only going to go better. But in 2014, there was a huge civil war broke down, and uh, we had victims everywhere, massacres in the, in, uh, in the streets of the big cities, not only the rural areas. So um, this camp, which is called POC, Protection of Civilians, was created there and accommodated all these people. And no one was allowed to come in or go out, so they had uh, safety. And this, uh, in order this to work, you don't. Uh, uh, you need more than just some medical doctors provide uh, health care. You need, of course, uh, everyone. Water sanitation. You need uh, uh, education. Uh, uh, and there are several uh, other uh, NGOs, as you can imagine. And we, of course, have to work together. But what is the difference? The difference is that, thanks to you, we are so independent. We have the money. We move fast, and we cannot sometimes wait for the others, or we cannot really support more the others. The others are more dependent on uh, either earmarked funds, funds from donor countries. Let me give an example. UK uh, had cut the funds by 50% last year, and I could see this uh, consequence uh, there in, uh, in Bentu POC camp, because uh, we were supposed to have 7,000 uh, toilets, latrines for the people, still not enough, but okay. And out of them, because of all this cut funding, only the 2,000 of them worked. So what you see at the end of the day is us having to treat more uh, bloody diarrheas of little kids, uh, more malaria. That's where we need to work closer uh, but um, uh, we cannot substitute uh, and uh, we cannot fund others because we have been mandated to take the support and deliver it to those that they need it in a very direct way and not in any other way. Uh, we have time for one final question. Uh, would anyone like to... Okay, I think Christos. Uh, I have a final question for you, therefore. If you could leave one lasting message for us sitting in this room, what is your final message to us? Apart from, of course, thanking you 
apart from looking forward to be engaging in every single opportunity, I want to inspire you the confidence that what we do may not be enough, but we do it by respecting principles, values, by trying our best to be standing next to those that they need us, and even knowing that this is not enough, at least both for them and for us, there is hope that is still there. And what I'm asking in order to do that is to, to stay together. We all need it. Stay together in order to keep defending humanity. Thank you. Back to business. Um, <laughs> it feels a little bit soulless to talk about those topics right now, so we'll skip that. But um, a big thank you to our hosts, uh, Bonk, De Groof, Peter Cam, for allowing us to be here. Um, uh, thank you to my colleagues also from Paper Jam and Delano. And if you'd like to have any more connection with us, do please come and meet me or meet one of my colleagues, and we'd be delighted to chat with you about that. Uh, that's everything from us. Uh, a drink will now be served outside. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.